Hello and welcome back to Rock Band's podcast. Today we're talking about the epic 1972 double album, one of the most storied albums in rock and roll history, Exile on Main Street. It's a pretty long episode and there's a lot to cover. This is an episode that I really had to wrestle with what to include and what to cut because there are just so many interesting details. And if you want to know more, I include a list of sources on the website. All right, let's get started. Don't forget to subscribe to Rock Band's podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Band's Podcast and share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. All right, Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street. Nineteen seventy one was the year the Rolling Stones implemented the second part of their plan to revive their finances in the wake of Alan Klein. They left the United Kingdom. The first part of the plan was discussed in the last episode. They formally cut ties with Alan Klein, who, as you'll remember, had set up the Rolling Stones publishing company in a way that he owned and controlled their finances from the United States. Because of the deal with Alan Klein, the Rolling Stones as a business were extremely successful, but the Rolling Stones as individuals were shockingly poor for that success. In Bill Wyman's fascinating book, Stone Alone, he details the Stones' finances at this time, and it's true, the money was pretty sparse. Maybe Mick and Keith had a bit more because of songwriting royalties, but Wyman's bank account was often in the red, and most of the time hovering just a few thousand or even a hundred pounds over zero. The Rolling Stones had to leave the UK for tax purposes. Because Alan Klein was doling out whatever funds each band member needed to pay for housing, cars, vacations, etc. from the money he had in the US, the Stones weren't actually paying what they needed to pay in taxes to the British government. As a result of paying insufficient taxes, the Rolling Stones each owed hundreds of thousands of pounds to the Inland Revenue Service, which is the British IRS. Bill Wyman said, quote, We all thought that our taxes had been paid. We discovered in 1971 that we all owed in the region of £100,000 each. Unquote. Now, you'd think that the Stones with another hit song or two would eventually get rich enough to pay off their debt, but no. Britain in the 1960s and 70s had absurdly high taxes for high-income earners. So the Stones, being the rich pop stars that they were, were paying over 80% of their earnings over £20,000 to the government. On investments, it was even worse. The Stones had to pay up to 98% of their income made from investments over a certain number right to the government. Whatever you think about British fiscal policy in the 1960s and 70s, the problem was that the Stones had so much debt that they were never going to be able to make enough money to pay it off if they stayed in Britain. So, Prince Rupert Lowenstein, the Stones' new financial advisor, told them if they wanted to have a future in Britain financially, they had to leave the country, live and work somewhere else so they could come back to the UK with enough money to crawl out of debt. Put simply, the Stones had to become tax exiles. Prince Rupert Lowenstein suggested the Rolling Stones live in France. Rolling Stones historian Rich Cohen said in his seminal book, The Sun and the Moon and the Rolling Stones, quote, as for exile, Lowenstein suggested France. The prince, who had pull with Parisian officials, was able to arrange a deal. The Stones agreed to stay in the country for at least 12 months and spend at least £150,000 per year. In return, no additional taxes would be levied by the French government. Unquote. Keith Richards, in his book and subsequent interviews, has put forward a different reason for the Stones leaving the UK. 
He says that the band was chased out of the country by police because of their drug use. Keith Richards said, quote, It's all a bit of a kaleidoscope. I was definitely on another planet at the time. Everybody's got a different way of dealing. And you know, I didn't for a while. I took to the stuff. As I say, I never had a problem with drugs. I did have a problem with cops, unquote. Mick Jagger disagrees with Keith and said, quote, Keith always said that he was chased out of England by the cops. He may believe that, but I mean it's not actually true. The real reason the band left was money, unquote. Mick's right. The Rolling Stones did not leave the country because of cops, bad press, or drug busts. Drugs were illegal and punished severely just about everywhere, so there probably wasn't a country where the Stones were free to be Stones in 1971. But Keith Richards does sort of have a point in that his drug use was outgrowing England and cops were pretty happy to bust a rock star. Keith Richards had gradually become a heroin addict, or as he calls it, a junkie, since 1969, and his drug use risked putting his life, but also the band's future, in serious jeopardy. As I mentioned a few episodes back, Keith and Anita started using heroin around 68-69, just snorting it at first, but eventually they started using needles. Pretty quickly, Keith found his vice. Keith was always the shy and insecure Rolling Stone, and it made him a little less anxious and more extroverted, so he thought. Keith said, quote, There's probably a million reasons why you use heroin. I think it's maybe to do with working on the stage. The high levels of energy and adrenaline require, if you can find it, a sort of antidote. And I saw smack as just becoming part of that. I never particularly liked being famous. I could face people easier on the stuff, but I could with booze too. It isn't really the whole answer, unquote. Whatever the reason for Keith Richards' heroin addiction, he's going to bring that and heroin to the south of France. And in the spring of 1971, the Rolling Stones packed their bags and moved to France, where they would record Exile on Main Street, what many people believe to be their greatest work ever. But before the Stones left for France, they decided to do a farewell tour in the UK. The tour was initially planned to support Sticky Fingers, which was released in April of 71, but it became known as the Goodbye Britain Tour, because on the date of their first concert in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, they publicly broke the news that they were moving to the south of France after the tour. The Rolling Stones at this point were really too big for Britain. They hadn't played their home country since 1966, so there was a particularly high demand for tickets. To accommodate the demand, the Stones played two shows in each city something they did frequently throughout the 1970s. The 1971 UK tour also featured some of the Stones' most historic performances, which were lucky enough to be recorded, like their March 13th show at University of Leeds, their two shows at the Roundhouse in London, and their tour closer at the Marquee Club. The Marquee show was so important because this was the venue where the Rolling Stones began their career with Brian Jones in 1962. The show was a symbolic goodbye to this chapter in their careers, and it was a pretty fitting place to say goodbye to Britain. After the conclusion of their UK tour in March, the Rolling Stones each moved down to the south of France. The period that the band spent in the south of France is one of the most important in their history. Never were they more hedonistic, taking huge quantities of drugs and alcohol, living in mansions, and taking weeks to record a single song, playing through the night in the sweltering summer heat. 
At the same time, never were they more productive as a band. Far away from the distractions of their real lives and in the routine they'd created in England. Maybe it was vacation energy, but there was a magic in the south of France that just made the music flow out of the band members, and they created their longest, most intricate, and most stone-sounding album ever. As we'll talk about, Exile on Main Street showcases a band that's officially driving in a different gear. This was when they found a new plateau musically. They gelled like they had never before, and the stone sound that they had been gesturing at, driven by Keith's rhythm guitar, finally arrived fully developed. Bill Wyman said of the band's playing in the south of France, quote, We were dynamite, unbeatable really, unquote. And how can you blame them? They went from wintry England to spending their spring and summer in the heat of the Mediterranean. Keith Richards said, quote, I think in France, I felt a sort of lifting of the weights that I didn't realize was on me in England, unquote. The Rolling Stones didn't live together or even all that close to each other. The center of the exile on Main Street operation was Keith Richards' rented home in Villefranche-sur-Mer, a mansion called Nelcote. Keith said, quote, Nelcote was the most amazing house. It had been built around the 1890s by an English banker with a large garden, a little overgrown, behind the great iron gates. The proportions were superb. If you felt a little ragged in the morning, you could walk through this glittering chateau and feel restored. It was like a hall of mirrors with 20-foot ceilings and marble columns, grand staircases. This was the grandeur we felt we deserved after the shabbiness of Britain." Unquote. After a few weeks of hunting for a place to record, the band decided to bring the Rolling Stones mobile studio down to Keith's house at Nelcutt and record in the basement. Keith said, quote, we hadn't intended to record in my house. We did look around for studios around there once we'd all decided that was what we were going to do, but although there are plenty of very good French recording engineers now, at the time in the south of France in the early 1970s, there weren't too many. There were no studios with good rooms to work in, the equipment was shabby, and nobody felt comfortable in any of the places we looked at. I had this basement, which was really very ugly but it was the biggest one of all the houses we had down there, and we also had our own mobile recording truck. So we said, why don't we just forget about looking for a studio? Let's bring in the truck and work around the problems. At least this way, we don't have to ask interpreters every time we want to turn it on or off, unquote. Bill Wyman said, quote, we had to go to Keith's house to do it. Keith insists, or else Keith ain't ever gonna go to the session. That's where we recorded Exile on Main Street. We did it in the basement of his house, unquote. Mick Jagger was, for a while, commuting to the south of France from Paris to spend time with his new girlfriend, Bianca. Bianca Perez Mora Marcias was born in Nicaragua, which was under a dictatorship at the time. She had some family in government, but she spent most of her life poor. She was very worldly, she was a curious person, so she moved to Paris in the late 1960s to study politics with the hope of becoming a diplomat. She briefly dated British actor Michael Caine and French musician Eddie Barclay before meeting Mick Jagger in September of 1970. The Rolling Stones had just finished a show in Paris, and Mick was meeting up with Donald Kamel, the director who worked with Mick Jagger on the film Performance. Donald Kamel had become acquainted with Bianca, and according to Kamel, she was intent on meeting Mick. Kamel said, quote, Bianca had set her cap at Mick, and she was determined, so I engineered a meeting. I procured Mick for Bianca. As I introduced them, I said, you two are going to have a great romance. You were made for each other, unquote. 
Kamel was right, Mick and Bianca were almost immediately inseparable. After just a few months, Bianca was pregnant, and the couple got married just eight months after meeting. Mick shocked the band when he announced just a few months after meeting Bianca that he was going to marry her and that he was expecting a child. In May of 1971, the couple got married in Saint-Tropez. Mick's marriage to Bianca ruffled Keith's feathers, who didn't like his writing partner spending so much time away from Nelcutt. Keith said, quote, Even then, I had nothing against Bianca personally. It was just the effect of her and her milieu on Mick that I didn't like. It distanced him from the rest of the band, and Mick's always looking to separate himself from the band. Mick would disappear for two weeks on vacation. He would commute from Paris. Bianca was pregnant, and their daughter Jade was born in the fall when Bianca was in Paris. Bianca didn't like Nelcut life, and I don't blame her, so Mick was torn, unquote. Bill Wyman and his girlfriend Astrid Lundstrom and Mick Taylor and his fiancée Rose moved closest to Nelcott. They both rented homes near Grass. Charlie wasn't tempted to live near the studio, and he wanted to keep the work to the week and spend his weekends with his wife and daughter. He rented a home in Aix-en-Provence, three hours away from Nelcott. During the week, he'd crash at Keith's. Charlie said, quote, I used to leave on Monday morning, get to Keith's in the evening, and then leave on a Friday night and go home. Keith was very comfortable to live with. Nelcott was like a nightclub, but a very cool one. It wasn't all shouting and everything. Keith used to read books and sleep in the sun. He still does the same thing. He reads great thick books and then nods off. He then wakes up and carries on. He loves the sun. He did then too. He would always have jeans on and his top off." Unquote. Keith said of Charlie's schedule, quote, I remember being a little dismayed that Charlie had decided to live three hours away. I would have loved to have Charlie around the corner so I could call him and say, got an idea, can you pop by? But the way Charlie wanted to live and where he wanted to live was in fact about 130 miles away. So it's just uncool for him to live down in the Côte d'Azur in the summer. Too much society going on and too much blah blah. I can understand totally. Charlie's the type of guy that would go down in the winter when it's horrible and empty. He found where he wanted to live and it certainly wasn't on the coast, it certainly wasn't in Cannes, Nice, or Monte Carlo. Charlie cringes from places like that, unquote. Bill Wyman wasn't thrilled about moving away from England, but he arguably settled into the south of France more than any of the Stones. Bill quickly made friends with some pretty notable artists and writers in the south of France, like James Baldwin and Marc Chagall. Keith said, quote, Bill Wyman was up in the hills near Grasse. He was soon hanging out with Marc Chagall, of all people. The most unlikely couple I can think of. Bill Wyman and Marc Chagall. Neighbors, pop round for a cup of Bill's terrible tea, unquote. The Exile on Main Street sessions are famous for the rock and roll excess that took place. The Stones had always been pirates when it came to their lifestyle, but never, not even during the recording of their Satanic Majesty's request, was there so little structure when it came to recording. Mick Jagger said, quote, It was a very difficult recording environment. Well, in some ways it was very difficult, in some ways it was very interesting. In that period, there were always a lot of people. That wasn't new. But it did sort of reach new heights. There were obviously loads of drugs in the sessions, but everyone had different drug habits. They weren't all the same. And people who take drugs tend to hide their drug habits from other people. You don't always know what people are taking. But there were a lot of drugs. There were loads of drugs." Unquote. Bill Wyman said, quote, 
I supposed we had the band there, the whole band there, probably 30-40% of the time. Unquote. The principal engine for the dysfunction was Keith, who was of course addicted to heroin. Mick Jagger said, quote, We would almost get to the point of recording a song and Keith would have to leave because he wanted another fix or whatever reason. Unquote. The band started recording at Nelcott in June, and they didn't typically start playing music until after nightfall. With everyone living so far away, it wasn't always guaranteed who was going to show up and who was going to skip the sessions. Keith, who literally lived at the studio, would miss days at a time. Mick would use Keith's absence as an excuse not to show up either. A lot of the songs were recorded over several weeks, with only a portion of the band there to record their parts. It was a very disjointed process. Bill Wyman said, quote, Keith was getting out of it a lot. In retaliation, Mick wouldn't turn up some nights. The principal spectators of these games were me, Charlie, and Mick Taylor. It was a nightmare. Instead of working on a song for two hours, you worked on it for two fucking weeks, unquote. At Nelcott, drugs were pretty much everywhere. Jimmy Miller, who had, to this point, been the main organizer when it came to the Rolling Stones' recording practices, had become a druggie. A bunch of other engineers and recording staffers also became drug addicts. Charlie Watts said, quote, I thought it was quite amusing, a lot of it. People hang around with Keith, and they think they're Keith. It's ridiculous, unquote. But apparently there was a method to Keith's madness. Exile on Main Street is largely considered to be Keith Richards' album, driven by his song ideas and his open G guitar riffs. There's some truth to that. I mean, Keith really lived with Exile on Main Street, and Keith is sort of the DNA that runs through the album, but Exile was such a team process, and the sober members were able to carry the album when Keith was too out of it to do the same, or to get it back on track when Keith was falling off the tracks. Exile on Main Street opens up with the classic guitar riff of Rocks Off. Rocks Off is arguably the most underrated Rolling Stones song there is. It's a forgotten hit, a song that was played live only a handful of times since it was released, but a song that tells you everything you need to know about the Stones. It has a great groove, rude lyrics that are barely audible over the mixture of rock and roll instruments and horns, and a vague reference to both sex and drugs throughout. Rocks Off is the perfect way to open up this iconic album. The album leads into the high-speed Rip This Joint, one of the fastest in the Stones catalog, which is driven by Keith's guitar, but Mick's vocals really drive the song, almost like a bass drum. Next are the two sort of filler songs, Shake Your Hips and Casino Boogie. Shake Your Hips is a great rendition of the 1960s classic by Slim Harpo, Mick Taylor and Keith Richards play some phenomenal guitar on Shake Your Hips. The song also features an excellent outro solo by Mick Taylor, one of my favorite guitar parts while he's with the band. There are a lot of filler-like songs on Exile on Main Street, but that contributes to the continuous groove of the album. Songs like Casino Boogie, Shake Your Hips, Turn on the Run, and I Just Want to See His Face. These filler tracks are actually good, and they're the reason why one should listen to Exile on Main Street all the way through at one time. It's really a complete listening experience. Mick Jagger said, quote, There's a lot of songs on Exile that are really, like, not songs at all, like Casino Boogie. They're really nicely played, but there's no hooks in them, and there's no memorable lyrics, unquote. The last song on Side 1, Disc 1, is the first hit of the album, Tumbling Dice. 
My personal favorite Stones song, I think this song just captures exactly what the Stones could do when they were at their best. The song is just so laid back, even the lead instruments are playing rhythm. The recording of Tumbling Dice started in the spring of 1970 at Stargroves as a song called Good Time Women, which you can hear on Spotify. When the band got to France, Tumbling Dice was one of the songs they just didn't stop working on. Keith had the riff, and he would just play it all day and all night. Andy Johns, an engineer and brother of Glyn Johns, the famous producer, said, quote, There must have been at least 32-inch reels on Tumbling Dice. I mean, Keith sat there one afternoon just playing the reprise for about six hours, just round and round and round and round, sitting in a chair with his legs up on something, unquote. The song wasn't even finished in France. In fact, it wasn't completed until early 1972 when Mick and Keith were in L.A. mixing and mastering the work they'd recorded in France. Mick Taylor played bass on the song because Bill Wyman wasn't there when they recorded the rhythm track, and pretty much every guitar on it is played by Keith. Disc 2 opens up with Sweet Virginia, an acoustic country ballad. Work on Sweet Virginia started during the Sticky Finger sessions in 1970 when the Stones were still under Alan Klein's control. The band, not wanting to give any of their good songs to Alan Klein, squirreled it away and resumed work on it in France. Sweet Virginia is a pleasant song with a laid-back drum sound and a nice saxophone solo by Bobby Keys. Still, the Stones can't keep themselves from singing about drugs. Drop your reds, drop your greens and blues, and I hid the speed inside my shoes. These are all lyrics from Sweet Virginia. I think the best part about Sweet Virginia is the guitar riff and Mick and Keith's vocals. Mick sings this really ambient vocal part and Keith on the other end kind of sings a shrill background vocal and it just really works and creates an excellent sound. Torn and Frayed is the next song on the album and it's another masterpiece. A country song, this one is a little more pure than the Rolling Stones' usual blend of country and psychedelic rock. The song was influenced, whether it's admitted or not, by Graham Parsons, Keith's heroin buddy. Graham Parsons was the guitar player from the Flying Burrito Brothers. Parsons started off as the Birds guitarist when he joined the Birds in 1968. He turned them from a psychedelic folk band to a country outfit. In 1969, he formed the Flying Burrito Brothers, uh, where he would have more creative control than he did in the Birds. Parsons was a country purist. He loved the sound of pedal steel and the twang of Telecasters, and his lyrics sound more historical than commercial. And his impact on the Rolling Stones is visible. From Wild Horses and Dead Flowers to Torn and Frayed, Keith really admired Graham Parsons as a composer, and I think Keith saw Graham Parsons as a genuine country artist, something that, as a rock and roll star, he felt kind of an imposter about. He was imitating country. And, you know, Graham Parsons was imitating country too, but he did it with such authenticity that it was really inspiring to Keith Richards. Graham Parsons spent a lot of time at Nelcott during the Exile on Main Street sessions, and his presence was felt both musically and chemically. Keith and Graham had a grand time together. Pretty quickly, it became clear that Parsons was out of control, though. His heroin use was off the charts, even by Keith's standards, and the band felt like Graham's presence was dragging them down. Eventually, Mick convinced Keith to ask Graham to leave, and he was gone by the end of July. Keith feels like Mick had a different reason for wanting Graham gone. Quote, Mick was very jealous of me having other male friends. That I was writing and playing with somebody else seemed to him to be a betrayal, though he never put it in those terms. Unquote. 
Sweet Black Angel was a song written largely by Mick. The acoustic guitar and washboard give the song a certain southern homemade flavor. Lyrically, it's a really interesting song because it's one of the few truly political songs in the Stones' repertoire, along with Mother's Little Helper. The song is meant to be in support of civil rights activist Angela Davis, who was facing murder charges in California at the time, for which she would later be found not guilty. Though never mentioned, the song calls for justice for Angela Davis. Even this subtle protest song is interesting because unlike artists like John Lennon or Yoko Ono, the Rolling Stones really weren't that straightforward about their activism. They just didn't really do that. So this is definitely one of the more unique songs in the catalog. Loving Cup is another song the band wanted to keep away from Alan Klein. Recording of Loving Cup started in 1969 during the Let It Bleed sessions. The Exile version starts with that iconic piano introduction played by Nicky Hopkins, who was at the Exile sessions for most of the summer. But the song really kicks off when Charlie Watts comes in with that big drum intro into the chorus. Loving Cup is another song I would categorize as sort of a hidden gem. It's a great song, but it's considered to be a Stones deep cut. It's also one of the songs where all five band members, Mick, Keith, Charlie, Bill, and Mick Taylor, played together, which shows you how different they could sound as a band. Loving Cup pretty much has the whole ensemble. It has the five Stones, plus Nicky Hopkins on piano, Bobby Keys on saxophone, Jim Price on trumpet, and even producer Jimmy Miller stepped in for some maracas to add extra percussion and rhythm. Disc 3 opens up with Keith Richards' composition, Happy. This song features Keith on lead vocals and Mick on backup. Keith wrote the song, lyrics and all, one day in the south of France, and recorded it just as quickly. Keith said, quote, We did that in an afternoon, in only four hours, cut and done. At noon, it had never existed. At four o'clock, it was on tape, unquote. Mick and Keith are the only Rolling Stones on the song, actually. Keith sings lead vocals and plays rhythm guitar and bass, and Mick sings backup vocals and plays tambourine. Jimmy Miller is on drums, Bobby Keys is on sax, Jim Horn is on trumpet, and Nicky Hopkins plays piano. Happy does sound like a true Rolling Stones song, and it was the only Keith Richards vocal song to ever chart as a single in the top 100. It was a very minor hit. By the middle of summer, the lifestyle at Nelcott wasn't working well for the band members. Attendance had become a huge problem, and Bill Wyman at points stopped showing up because the sessions were so erratic. Band members could be gone for weeks at a time on vacation somewhere, but when they were there, there was no schedule. Keith said, quote, I suppose the schedule was rather strange. It became known as Keith time, which in Bill Wyman's case made him a little cranky. At first, we were going to start at 2 p.m., but that never happened. So we said we'd start at 6 p.m., which usually meant around 1 a.m., unquote. The attendance is why there are so many different people playing different instruments, and Bill Wyman, who was an original member, only played on about half of the songs on Exile. Mick Taylor said, quote, There are quite a few things I played bass on. I used the band's Fender Jazz bass for these because Bill wasn't there. He was late, and nobody bothered to wait. That used to happen a lot, actually. I don't mean to say Bill was late a lot. We didn't always get there at the same time. If we felt like playing, we would, unquote. Bill Wyman is officially credited on eight songs, but he disputes this, and he says he played on 12 songs out of the 18 released. But Mick Jagger wrote the credits wrong. Either way, Bill Wyman liked order, and Exile on Main Street was the opposite of order. 
The laissez-faire attitude created more problems than music in some ways. Marshall Chess was the son of the founder of Chess Records, and he was the head of Rolling Stones Records, the band's new label. Chess was deeply concerned and anxious at the slow pace and high cost of the Exile on Main Street sessions, and he was shocked to learn after a summer in France the album wasn't even close to finished. There were also problems with police because it was such a well-known party house filled with drugs, and one day someone broke into Nelcott, stole nine guitars, some which were extremely valuable, like the Gibson Flying V played at Hyde Park. Despite the turbulence, the band kept working, sporadically and in intense heat. In Keith's basement, it would be unbearably hot, and there was no air conditioning. One of the most intense songs on Exile is Ventilator Blues. The heat was so oppressive at points throughout the summer, and the ventilation in Keith's basement was so minimal, which inspired the song Ventilator Blues. The song is built around the main riff played by Mick Taylor. Mick Taylor wrote the main riff of the song, and he was even given a writing credit for his work, something he wishes he got more of on Exile on Main Street. Mick Taylor's priority in France was playing, and he arguably had the best attendance record. He played guitar on almost every song except for Torn and Frayed and Happy. He also played bass on a few of the songs. The only Exile on Main Street song not to feature Mick Taylor at all is Happy. It's not like Mick Taylor was just adding a guitar lick here and there either. Taylor's contributions are crucial to many of the songs. It's a tough call, though, because while Jagger and Richards are notoriously stingy with their writing credit, they are, at the same time, the creative leaders of the band, and not every contribution deserves a composition credit. The question of whether or not a guitar part counts as composition has led to many fights and broken up many bands. Mick Taylor did get a credit on Ventilator Blues, though, which is a great song, even though it was only played live once because of its tricky rhythm. Charlie Watts said, quote, It's a fabulous number, but a bit of a tricky one. Bobby Keys wrote the rhythm part, which is the clever part of the song. Bobby said, Why don't you do this? And I said, I can't play that. So Bobby stood next to me clapping the thing, and I just followed his timing. In the world of Take 5, it's nothing. But it threw me completely, and Bobby just stood there and clapped while we were doing the track. And we've never quite got it together as well as that, unquote. Side 3 of Exile ends with one of the best songs on the album, Let It Loose, a song that was originally drafted at Mix House in Stargroves, but emerged more clearly as a jam during the Nelcott sessions. The song took a while to complete and has sort of a dark atmosphere to it. It seems to be about the excesses of fame, the challenge of living on the road, and the shallowness of ego. Mick Jagger seems to think the song doesn't mean anything at all, though. Jagger said, quote, I think Keith wrote that, actually. That's a very weird, difficult song. I had the whole other set of lyrics to it, but they got lost by the wayside. I don't think that song has any semblance of meaning. It's one of those rambling songs. I didn't really understand what it was about after the event." Unquote. Once again, you have to take Jagger's words with a grain of salt. He's notorious for adding more confusion to the meanings of his songs and his interpretation of events, maybe to keep some mystery about them. Side 4 opens up with a more classic Rolling Stones vibe, with the bluesy, fast, and energetic All Down the Line. All Down the Line was another song that originated during the Let It Bleed sessions, one that Klein wanted to take. But the Stones completely changed the nature of the song in France, and it turned into an electric rocker. With Keith's open G tuning and Mick Taylor's phenomenal slide guitar solos, the song is another one of those Forgotten Stones classics. All Down the Line did remain part of the Rolling Stones' live repertoire throughout the 1970s, though. 
Next is Stop Breaking Down, a Robert Johnson blues cover. Uh, this is another uh, homage to their roots. Uh, it's another song that feels like a filler track, but with Mick Jagger's vocals and Mick Taylor's slide guitar, it really stands out, and it's one of the most bluesy numbers the Rolling Stones really ever did. Arguably the most significant song on Exile is the second-to-last track, Shine a Light. This song was written largely by Mick Jagger and Leon Russell in a gospel style for Leon Russell's 1970 album. The song was originally composed in 1968 when Brian Jones was still with the band, and it was titled Get a Line on You. The song was about Brian's growing detachment from the band and his drug addiction. The lyrics, Berber jewelry jangling down the street, make you shut your eyes at every woman that you meet, could not seem to get a high on you, my sweet honey love. Another very strange lyrical move by the Stones. The Rolling Stones never really wrote anything like this sort of song before or after. It's a really sensitive and open song. It's not really a tribute or appreciation song about Brian, but it does in some way share some fondness and well wishes for his memory. It's probably as emotional as the Rolling Stones would ever get. The Stones moved at an extremely fast pace, but there was no doubt that Brian's death still in some way hung over the band. Bill Wyman and Charlie Watts were more angry about the way Brian was treated. Mick Jagger felt guilty about the way it ended with Brian, and you can hear that in Mick Jagger's lyrics in Shine a Light. Jagger still very much thought about Brian. Keith blocked it out from his consciousness. Keith could not run from Brian's memory, however. Keith was dating Brian's ex-girlfriend. Keith replaced Brian as the band's rhythm guitarist. Keith was now the band's out-of-it, far-out drug addict. For Keith, Brian was almost his spirit. Keith wasn't channeling Chuck Berry or Elvis or Muddy Waters. He was really channeling Brian Jones. Shine a Light doesn't even feature Keith Richards on the song. Mick Taylor plays an excellent guitar solo, and Billy Preston plays a great organ part. The Stones didn't play Shine a Light live on stage until 1995, and it's extremely rare to hear the Rolling Stones talk about the song at all. I mean, Mick Jagger barely talked about his lyrics in the aftermath of the release, and really said little about it since then. Regardless, Exile on Main Street almost immortalizes the memory of Brian Jones, uh, on the second disc, uh, and Shine a Light is and will always be one of the most unique and memorable Rolling Stones songs. Now, if you find yourself wondering how the Rolling Stones were able to record an album of this quality at Keith's Party House in France, you're asking the right question. These were not professional sessions, and by the fall, the Rolling Stones found themselves with a whole bunch of rough cuts, demos, and relatively bare-bones tracks, none of which were mixed, mastered, or ready to be released to the public. Simply put, by the fall, the Stones needed to have much more of a coherent album than they actually did. Given that they had just burned through money all summer, and the business people, like Marshall Chess, were starting to get anxious about not having an album ready for release. This problem was made worse by Keith's despondence and Mick's absence, which was understandable considering Bianca gave birth to their daughter Jade that fall, and the deterioration of the lifestyle in France overall. The exile sessions and chaotic routine it created for Keith's drug use were starting to become a real problem for the band. Keith was spiraling. Bill Wyman said, quote, 
Keith was becoming even less communicative, where he was always so decisive and to the point, he was now vague and withdrawn, unquote. More chaos ensued in the fall. In early October, there was a fire at Nelcott. Keith and Anita, who were nodding off on heroin in their bedroom, were so out of it that they didn't even notice the mattress they were laying on was literally engulfed in flames. Luckily, the fire was put out, nobody was hurt, and they were pulled out of the smoky room. But this incident shows just how close the wheels were to completely falling off. By October, the band decided they had to leave France to finish the album. The creative part was over. They had all the jams and the long nights of writing and recording to fill a double album, but now it was time to actually sit down and make the album, which simply couldn't be done in France. Mick and Keith decided to overdub guitar parts and vocals, same with Mick Taylor, and they would mix and master the album in Los Angeles, where they could have access to professional engineers and a real working studio. Apart from the chaos of recording, when mixing occurred, the band knew they had a stellar album. They ate, slept, and breathed this all summer, so they had high expectations for the final product. Getting there was tough, though, especially because Jimmy Miller, who would usually lead the mixing and mastering effort, wasn't really as involved as he should have been. Mick said, quote, At the time, Jimmy Miller was not functioning properly. I had to finish the whole record myself, because otherwise there were just drunks and junkies. I was in LA trying to finish the record, up against a deadline. It was a joke, unquote. Keith remembers the collaboration of the Exile session, saying, quote, In those days, you couldn't really split apart who did what. Mick and I were both incredibly involved in laying down the tracks. And by the time we got to LA, we kind of already knew what we wanted. We knew the record so well by the time we went to do the overdubs, so I can't go with any of the this is Mick's and that was Keith's bullshit. We made the records, Mick and I were tight, unquote. Either way, Mick and Keith bit off a little bit more than they could chew. It took way longer than expected to finish the album, and they were running against a deadline. It took weeks of work to get all the guitar parts, drum sound, and vocal sound just how they wanted, which was made more tedious by the fact that Mick was a perfectionist. Mick said, quote, I wanted the snares to crack and the voices to float. It's tricky, all right. You think you've got the voices sussed out and all of a sudden the backing tracks seem so ordinaire. To Andy Johns, the cymbals sounded like dustbin lids, unquote. Mick and Keith were mixing the album through the fall of 1971 and into the early winter of 1972. The album wouldn't be released until May of 1972, about a year after the band left England for France. The band was flirting with a few names for Exile on Main Street, like Tropical Disease, for example, but the band figured that Exile on Main Street perfectly captured the essence of the band at the time. The Rolling Stones were exiles, they were outlaws, but for some reason you could still find them in a record store near you. The cover is a black and white collage of a bunch of odd characters with Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street written over it in bright red ink. When the album was finally released in May of 1972, the band was nervous and excited about the final product. This was a different album from anything they had worked on in the past, and it included some of the biggest musical leaps of the Stones' career. Yet it was also the most basic rock and roll record that the band ever cut. Mick Jagger said when the album was released in 1972, quote, This new album is fucking mad. There are so many different tracks. It's very rock and roll, you know. I didn't want it to be like that. I'm the more experimental person in the group. You see, I like to experiment. Not go over the same thing over and over. Since I've left England, I've had this thing I've wanted to do. I'm not against rock and roll, but I really want to experiment. The new album's very rock and roll, and it's good. I mean, I'm very bored with rock and roll. 
The Revival. Everyone knows where its roots are, but you've got to explore everywhere. You've got to explore the sky, too." Unquote. The lead single was Tumbling Dice, which was well-received and landed them a top 10 single. Initially, the music world didn't quite know what to do with Exile on Main Street, and the reviews were less than impressive. Critics were disappointed by the inclusion of what they perceived to be filler tracks and complained about the lack of memorable or commercial songs. The double album also opened Exile to a comparison with the Beatles' White Album. Critics eventually changed their tune, and the record went to number one in the United States and in the United Kingdom. By the mid-1970s, Exile on Main Street became known as the classic Stones album, something that they could never quite live up to again. It defined rock and roll, and it was the gold standard for 1972. This is not something critics said when it was released. Bill Wyman said, quote, Critics always like to give the Stones bad reviews. One day they're going to be right. They just haven't been right so far, because we always manage, I don't mean to be conceited, but we always manage to come up with the goods, and the public seems to like it, and they buy it. Then three years later, the reviews turn around and say, yeah, that was a great album, after saying at the time, it was a load of shit. Most of them did that with Exile, and came back and said it was probably one of the greatest albums or packages the Stones had ever put out. So what? I don't care what they say anymore, unquote. Keith Richards loved Exile more than any other stone, and largely because it was his creative process that fueled the album. Keith said, quote, Every time I choose my favorite Stones album, I keep thinking about the ones I'm leaving out. It's like babies, but if I got to pick one, I'll say, and you can take that with a large dose of salt, Exile. Because of its amazing spirit, the incredible amount of enthusiasm and screw youing, you can throw us out, but you can't get rid of us, unquote. Mick Jagger is a bit less enthusiastic about Exile's quality, and since its release, he's been downplaying it, saying, quote, Exile on Main Street is not one of my favorite albums, though I think the record does have a particular feeling. I'm not too sure how great the songs are, but put together it's a nice piece. However, when I listen to Exile, it has some of the worst mixes I've ever heard. I'd love to do a remix of the record, not just because of the vocals, but because generally I think it sounds lousy. Of course, I'm ultimately responsible for it, but it's really not good and there's no concerted effort or intention. As long as people like the album, that's fine. It's just that I don't particularly think it's a great album." Unquote. Regardless of what the band members thought about Exile, it truly is a classic album. To me, it's hard to find an album that captures the Stones sound like this one, but more importantly, the blend of blues, country, soul, and gospel mixed with the hedonism in the creative process and the mood of the band created a pure rock and roll album. Exile on Main Street was also a symbol of the Stones at their peak. However, the making of the album, as rock and roll as it was, would pale in comparison to the tour it would inspire in the summer of 1972, where the Stones' reputation took on a life of its own. Thank you so much for listening to Rock Band's podcast. If you enjoy the show, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow at Rock Band's podcast on Instagram and share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. Next episode, we're talking about the iconic Rolling Stones tour of North America in 1972. And until then, listen to Exile on Main Street.